Welcome back to Good Distinctions. I'm your host, Will Wright. Before we begin, I want to, I want to invite you to consider contributing financially to Good Distinctions. Good Distinctions are the spice of life, and Teresa and I are enjoying producing content, finding good distinctions, igniting good conversation, and inviting you all to do likewise. But in order to continue, we need your help. Uh, there's lots of costs associated with doing a channel and podcast, microphones, uh, cameras, lighting equipment, software for recording and software for editing and producing, um, software for storage. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of uh, costs associated. And so both of us have full-time jobs. We do this on the side, and we'd love to continue to grow uh, Good Distinctions. But in order to do that, we really need your help. So please consider becoming a paid subscriber and show your financial support for as little as $5 a month by clicking subscribe at gooddistinctions.com. Uh, that would help us out a great deal in continuing to produce great content. Uh, we've already gotten a lot of great feedback about Good Distinctions. Some of you have said that, you know, it... it it has ignited good conversations uh, with your friends and family members, and, and that's exactly what we're looking for. We think this content is universally applicable to every person on the face of the planet because uh, we're, we're focusing on good philosophy, good theology, history, psychology, all of those things. And we have some great guests lined up, um, some good content that Teresa and I hope to produce together, and, uh, and we need your support to continue our mission at Good Distinctions of finding the best distinctions, igniting good conversation, and inspiring others to do the same. So with that being said, in today's episode, we'll be taking a quick walk through the Nicene Creed to examine what Catholics believe. And of course, the Catechism of the Catholic Church does a much better job than I will do here. And there are books that provide an even deeper dive than that. And my goal here is really just to provide a 30,000-foot view of the Nicene Creed, the symbol of faith. The creed has been referred to from ancient times as a symbolon. And the Greek word symbolon means to throw together. The creeds as symbols of faith draw the followers of Christ together in like belief. And Scott Hahn in his book on the creed, on the, on the Nicene Creed, refers to the recitation of the Nicene Creed at Holy Mass during the Liturgy of the Word as analogous to receiving Holy Communion during the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So it's a big deal. In our, in our public recitation of belief, we identify ourselves boldly as Christians in union with those around us and all those who have come before and as a symbol of faith, you know, it's a very interesting thing. Uh, symbolon is the exact opposite of the word diabolon. Um, if symbolon means to hurl together, diabolon means to hurl apart. And what does that word diabolon sound like? Well, it's a lot like the Spanish word diabolos, or diablo rather. Uh, but this Greek word diabolos is, is demons. That's where we get the word demon, uh, is, is the demons hurl us apart. The, they, they hurl us away from God. A symbolon does the exact opposite. So reciting the Nicene Creed at mass is exactly the opposite of what Satan wants us to do. So next time you say the creed, say it proudly, say it loudly, and the demons shudder and flee. Um, so the Nicene Creed technically... It's called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed uh, because of the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople in the 4th century that it came from. And it's professed every Sunday at Mass in the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church 
and in the Eastern Rites of the Catholic Church, and in our separated Orthodox brethren um, in their services, as well as in the Divine Liturgy, rather, as well as many Protestant services. The same creed is professed in its original formulation. Now, of course, there's a difference between merely reciting the creed and actually believing rightly what it stands for. Um, as far as the, the only difference between the creed of the East and the West is the later edition of the phrase and the Son in Latin, the filioque, to the paragraph on the procession of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, this disagreement, this theological disagreement, has caused great difficulty and division between Eastern and Western Christianity. The Nicene Creed arose from the first two ecumenical councils of the church. The first ecumenical council is the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And the second is the council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Now, this creed is ancient, and it's preserved the faithful from a variety of heresies for over 1600 years. And to understand it is to understand what we believe as Catholics. So let's take a, a, a walk through the creed a bit more in depth and try to understand it a bit more in depth. Of course, each word in, in the phrase in every paragraph is packed with meaning and endless depth. Truly the reality of our faith is what we're diving into and the mysteries of an infinite God. So there's always more to learn. So paragraph one, God, the father, I believe in one God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth of all things visible and invisible. So we believe in one God in three persons. We don't believe in three gods. Our one God is not only our King and Lord, he's our heavenly father. We are his adopted son or daughter through baptism. He created everything that we can see, but he also created all the things that we can't see. For example, we believe in the angels, our own souls, and in demons, um, in, in dark matter, and all the other things in the world that we can't see. Uh, but God is, is Lord over all of it, and he has all might. He's almighty. So even though he's tremendously powerful, our God and Father draws us into a relationship with him and invites us to share in his eternal blessedness in another invisible reality, heaven. Okay, next paragraph. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. We'll stop there. So the second person of the Blessed Trinity is the Word of God, the Son of God. And this word of God, Jesus Christ, proceeds from the Father. He was born and begotten, but not made. Now, this is a mystery that's very difficult to understand. Much ink has been spilled in theology on how Jesus can be both God and man, and yet he is. In other words, Jesus is fully God, and he is eternal, just as the Father is eternal. This paragraph emphasizes that there's one God, but the Father is nonetheless distinct as a person from the person of the Son. Though distinct persons, these persons share in the one metaphysical substance, using a scholastic term, substance of the Godhead. And this is what the word consubstantial means, the Son being one with, one in substance with the Father. In other words, the person of the Son 
in the person of the Father share in the same one divine nature. The council fathers went to great lengths to combat the Arian heresy, which claimed that Jesus was created and was not truly God. He was the, the highest of all beings. And we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Um, as the word of God, he's existed forever and always will exist. He proceeds from the Father as God from God and light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And I'll go into more detail on, on this in the fifth paragraph on the Holy Spirit. There's also the realization that it's through the word of God that all things were made. God reveals to us in Genesis that God speaks in order to create. And he says, let there be light. And there was light. So Jesus Christ, the word of God, was sent on a mission by the Father to come down from heaven in order to redeem humanity and offer us salvation. In the third paragraph, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So by the free choice of Mary, our mother and, and the mother of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the word of God took on flesh. Jesus Christ, the uncreated word through whom all things were made, condescended to share in our humanity. The Almighty God emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, to use the language of St. Paul. In the Latin rite, there's a tradition of bowing during the paragraph in honor of the Incarnation. During the liturgies for Christmas and the Feast of the Annunciation, we kneel down during this phrase when we recite the Creed. In the Roman Missal of 1962 and before, this practice of kneeling happened at every single Mass during the last Gospel, when the phrase, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us from John chapter 1 is uttered. And if you've attended the Latin Mass, then you'll be familiar with hearing those words, et verbum caro factum est, and then genuflecting, right at the end of Mass. The Incarnation is literally the enfleshment of Jesus. And it's what we celebrate at Christmas and at the Annunciation. And this paragraph makes one of the most important moments in human history, or rather marks one of the most important moments in human history. Our God became one of us. And so then we move on to the Paschal Mystery. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And of course, this paragraph is directly connected to the previous. Jesus became man, was incarnated in order to accomplish the work of our salvation. It was for each of us that Jesus was crucified. The Council Fathers include under Pontius Pilate that phrase to show us that this was an historic reality. It really happened. So too, Jesus truly rose from the dead on the third day after being buried. And then 40 days after literally rising from the dead, he lifted himself up into heaven in a mysterious fashion in the, in the um, uh, ascension. And he now reigns in heaven as king at the right hand of the Father. And we believe that he will come again in glory. This is what we call the second coming. And at the second coming of Christ, we will all be judged, the universal judgment, the general judgment. Everything that we have done will be laid bare and true justice will be accomplished. This second coming will result in the passing away of the old heaven and of the old earth 
and the establishing of Jesus's everlasting kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. We move on to the next paragraph. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. So we believe in one God in three persons, and the three persons of the tr- uh, the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, who we also rightly call Lord and giver of life. God breathed life into the first man, after all. In this holy breath of God is the Spirit which gives life and sustains life. He is glorified and loved as God along with the Father and the Son. We believe that the Holy Spirit before the Incarnation as well as after inspired the prophets. The Trinity is the mystery of God as He is, and it's, it's difficult to wrap our minds around this mystery in a meaningful way. Our metaphors are usually material, like a three-leaf clover or states of water as ice, liquid, or gas. And because they're material, they always fall short, because God is spiritual, not material. The best explanation I've heard of the Blessed Trinity is from St. Augustine's Analogy of the Mind. And I'm trying my best to offer a simplified version here, though it's, it's, it's really far from simple. And remember, this is an analogy. Okay, so... In our own minds, we have intellect and will. We can, we can think and we can act freely. We can know things and we can act freely. And when we learn or know things, we have a procession of the intellect. And when we act freely upon ourselves or the world, we have a procession of the will. Okay, so procession of the intellect, procession of the will. And if we analogously apply this understanding to the mind of God, again, it's an analogy, we see a procession of the intellect and a procession of the will in the mind of God. God is perfect, and so these processions must be infinite and perfect. The procession of the intellect within the mind of God is God the Father's perfect knowledge of himself. And this perfect image of himself is the Son. And the Son, in return, perfectly loves the Father. God is love, after all. Therefore, the procession of his will is perfect love, which proceeds as the love shared between the Father and the Son. And this is the Holy Spirit. However, we have to understand that he does, he does not proceed in time as he is eternal, as the Father and the Son This love shared between the Father and the Son is an eternal procession, the Holy Spirit. So I I find that helpful, anyway, that analogy of the mind. And and so I hope it was helpful to you as well. There's a lot better explanations than what I just gave, but um, it's very complicated. I mean, the the Trinity is, God is eternal. He's infinite. We can't wrap our heads around that. Uh, And so it's okay if you you try and then you go, I just don't get it. It's not really for us to get, right? God reveals a lot of things about himself, uh, and he reveals himself as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit, those three distinct persons sharing in the one substance of the Godhead. These analogies just help us try to understand. Uh, but rest assured, if we do as as God commands, if we are friends of Jesus, then when we see him face-to-face in heavenly glory— a lot of these things that, that plague our minds will pass away, and we will simply see him. How beautiful. And so how do we get there? Well, that's the next paragraph. I believe in the one 
holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The church of Jesus Christ is the mystical body of Christ. Before being an institution comprised of human beings, the church is divinely constituted. In other words, the church was begun by the action of the Holy Trinity, is sustained by the action of the Holy Trinity, and is ordered towards the Holy Trinity. Therefore, the church is holy, even if the human beings who comprise it are not always particularly holy. The church is one because Christ is one. She is one in her teaching, preaching, governance, and means of sanctification. The church is Catholic because the church is universal. Catholic means universal. The Greek is literally kataholon, which means according to the whole. And the church is apostolic because Christ founded it upon the apostles and apostolic teaching and continued in governance and preaching by their successors. We enter into this church through the one baptism of Christ by which we are cleansed of original sin, are grafted onto Christ, and become adopted sons and daughters of God. We believe that when Christ comes again, we will be reunited with our bodies in a glorified way similar to Christ's resurrected body. We don't know exactly what this will look like. And we look forward to the life of the world to come, which is eternal blessedness in the company of the angels and the saints in constant praise and love of God. And we'll want for nothing more and all suffering will be no more. And then the final paragraph, amen. That's it. That's the paragraph. And, and finally, amen. Amen means yes, means so be it. It means I believe it's the only ending to the creed that we can offer as human beings. God has revealed all he is and all that he's done for us, and our confident and faithful amen is the response of our heart. We should also keep in mind that the creed does not exist apart from the sacred liturgy. So the entire liturgy of the word, and especially the creed, is preparing us for the, what's about to come, the liturgy of the Eucharist. In the second century, St. Justin Martyr writes in his Apologia that after the prayers of thanksgiving and consecration were finished by the priest, all responded by saying, Amen. And of course, we're talking here about the end of the Eucharistic prayer, but I think it's worth talking about that because it's that Amen that this Amen of the Creed is preparing us for. Amen, it's not like saying, okay, goodbye, God, after prayer's finished. And St. Paul writes, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? So it seemed that the word amen packs a real punch. But what does it mean? Well, amen is a Hebrew word, which means so be it. St. Augustine translated it as it is true or verum est in Latin. In a tract explaining the mass from the Middle Ages, we read, Amen is a ratification by the people of what has been spoken. And it may be interpreted in our language as if they all said, may it so be done as the priest has prayed. It's a custom in most of the rites of the Catholic Church, both the East and the West, to say amen after receiving Holy Communion. In the Missale Romanum of 1962, the priest says, uh, usually quietly, and it can't be heard incredibly well, it's, Corpus Domini Nostri Jesu Christi Custodiat Animam Tuam and Vitam Aeternam Amen. In English, that's may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul unto life everlasting. Amen. 
So even though the communicant doesn't say amen, like in the Masali Romanum of 1970, the priest has said amen for them. And this language of amen seems like a contract. Right? When two people enter into an agreement with one another, they may mark it with a handshake and say, so be it, or I agree. And is that what's happening at Mass? Well, certainly what we're entering into at Mass is far more important, meaningful, lasting, and beautiful. Perhaps more than a contract, the Amen shows us that the language of the Mass is that of a covenant. A contract can be broken. A covenant cannot be broken. So when we approach our Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist, and when we're reciting the Creed, we're approaching the Bridegroom as the Bride. We're uttering our wedding vows to the King of Heaven each time we receive Holy Communion and each time we recite the Holy Creed. We're saying, I do, when we say amen. The meaning of the word is very close to this understanding. We're using the language of marriage to show that we're accepting the bridegroom into our body and soul to remain with us always, in a mystical way with the creed and in a mystical and and literal physical way uh, with Holy Communion. As husband and wife become one flesh in marriage, the communicant and our Lord become one in the Eucharist and in an analogous way in the creed. Communion means, means one with. We're becoming more closely joined to the Lord in reception of Holy Communion, which we've prepared for by our recitation of the Creed. Every time we say Amen, we should clearly state what we're doing. We are giving our assent of faith. We're not saying okay or sure. We're saying so be it. Do we know what we're saying yes to? Do we know what we're entering into? Our yes to God can't be half-hearted. It can't be wishy-washy. It has to be sure and resolute by his grace. Our Lord Jesus is a strong proponent of authenticity and resolution. Uh, We hear in the book of Revelation 3.16, So because you are neither lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And in the Gospel of St. Matthew, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So we need to let our amen mean amen. I hope this brief reflection has been a help to you. Ideally, we will all continue to grow in our knowledge, love, and service of the Lord until the glorious day when we see him face-to-face in paradise, God willing. Having the right belief on matters of doctrine is not a matter of triumphalism that we should lord over others. In humility and gratitude, we should accept this ancient formulation and symbol on and allow Jesus to enter us ever more fully into the heart and mind of the church. If you've enjoyed this episode and feel like it's been a help to you, please share it on your own personal social media. And more importantly than that, please consider sharing good distinctions with maybe two to three people at church or at work in person this week. That's what I'd ask of you. Um, The sort of topics that we're dealing with are universally applicable, should be of benefit to anyone and everyone. Uh, Also, if you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please take a moment to follow the show and leave a rating and review. That tells the algorithm that more people should listen to Good Distinctions. On YouTube, the best thing you can do is subscribe to the channel, like, like the episode, and leave a comment. And if you're listening natively on Substack and you use uh, Substack Notes, please consider restacking this episode, liking it, or sharing it on your own social media. 
And just a note on Substack, if you've not subscribed at gooddistinctions.com, please consider doing so. Besides the weekly video and audio episodes, we'll be releasing quite a bit more written content, things like short scripture reflections or commentaries on current events or little reflections on various topics. And you won't want to miss out on those. And as I said at the top of the show, if you believe in what Teresa and I are doing here at Good Distinctions, please consider becoming a paid subscriber for as little as $5 a month to support our mission. We believe that Good Distinctions are the spice of life, of course, but our mission is this, to seek out the best distinctions, to reignite good conversations, and inspire others to do the same. So thank you, sincerely, for listening, reading, and watching. Good distinctions are the spice of life, and to end today, please join me in praying through the Nicene Creed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. God bless.